Welcome back to the Sermapod. This is the podcast for the Sports and Entertainment Risk Management Alliance. I'm the host of the podcast and also the founder and CEO of Surma, Rich Lenkoff. Uh, very pleased to welcome Jonathan Stein Sapir. I practiced that, Jonathan. I think I got it. Right. Welcome to the podcast. Jonathan is an intellectual property attorney with Kinsella Weitzman out of Los Angeles, specifically Santa Monica. Uh, widely co- uh, quoted on issues like this, and in particular, the area that we're covering today deals with public domain and a very well-known figure. Now, i got to ex- explain sort of my uh, interest in this story in particular. We've done a couple of uh, stories on characters, intellectual property entering the public domain recently, and in, I have a huge um, interest in, in horror movies. I'm a big horror movie fan, have been for years. I have a production company. We're working on a horror film. So when I heard, and more importantly, Jonathan, when I saw the trailer for this film, (laughs) learning that the beloved Winnie the Pooh character, one of the most iconic characters in the history of children's literature, and in particular Disney, has now become a murderous, feral killer with his friend Tigger. I was in love automatically. I tell you, I was hooked. A lot of people would be horrified. Uh, I'm all in on this movie, so I want to talk about that a little bit and how it came to be that Winnie the Pooh came became this feral, murderous creature from our beloved Winnie the Pooh that we've known for years as a honey-loving, benevolent character. So let's talk a little bit about public domain because that's central to the story and why Winnie the Pooh is now available to some extent for films like this. Sure. So... Um, obviously, I have nothing to do with the production of this of this movie, so I, I can't speak to that. But but the key issue you're you're talking about is is the public domain and why Winnie the Pooh um, is available to be used in a horror film um, without the permission of either the author, the author's estate, or in this case, um, I believe all of the author all of the author's intellectual property was sold to Disney some time ago. Um, and the reason is, is because copyright law, like patent law, um, although copyright lasts a lot longer, um, copyright is a limited property right. It exists for a limited period of time. And in fact, the, the origins of that, I think they go back to England, but it's in the Constitution itself. One of the powers that Congress is given in the Constitution is to... Um, create copyrights and patents and it specifically says for a limited period of time and there's been some debate about what limited means in the case of copyright that now means uh, the life of the author plus 70 years so for example i represent the estate of michael jackson um so michael's uh you know a lot of his intellectual property, the, the intellectual property that he created, he obviously owned other intellectual property, but all his music will enter the public domain probably in 2079, so 70 years after he died. So in this case, um, the the Winnie the Pooh copyrights, I think, have just entered the public domain, but we have to take it one um, step at a time because the the way the copyrights here um, are, uh, 
the, the limited time on it is keyed to the publication of the original books. It's not key to the life of the author. And there's there's reasons why that is, but it's probably a little more nuanced and more complicated, not really something we need to get into here. But only the original book, as I understand it, has entered the public domain. The next books will will sort of enter the public domain in the next couple of years, you know, following from their publication. I think the original book was was published, as I understand it, in 1926. And so you mentioned um, Tigger. And in fact, Tigger is not in the public domain and he's not in this movie for that exact reason, which is that he was a character I understand that was created for a sequel. So he'll probably be in the sequel to this movie in a few years when he enters the public domain. Yeah, I mentioned Tigler. I, oh, Tigler, I should have said – great answer. But I should have said Piglet. Piglet is in the film, um, and there's a reference to uh, Eeyore, I think, uh, the deceased Eeyore, because there's a uh, yeah. a, a makeshift tombstone for Eeyore. But you're right. Um, yeah. uh, Tigger doesn't make the cut in this one. But I want to go back and sort of talk a little bit about – explain to our listeners and viewers the logic behind this life of the author plus 75 years. What is the basis for that and – um, what is sort of the balance between promoting creativity among creators of content and also the public's right to use certain intellectual property once the license expires? Sure. So when the original copyright statutes were created, I think um, in 1789, right when the first with the first Congress, a copyright was was quite a bit more limited. I think it was 20, 28 years, something like that. Um, it has periodically since then been extended and extended and extended. And today, like we said, it's, it's life plus 70 years or in the case of a corporate author, um, it's 95 years from um, its creation. Um, and so the, the thought is, in the case of copyrights, is that we want to encourage people to create, um, you know, create art to create, whether that art is music, um, books, art on the wall, photography, all kinds of other things. And so we want to give them an incentive to do so. And that incentive is that they get a monopoly on its reproduction and its use. Um, but we don't want to lock that out of um, the public forever. So um, it has to be limited. And um, so by letting it get into the public domain, we're letting people build on top of other art. And, uh, you know, when you when you think of Disney, um, Disney, of course, you know, its most famous movies um, other than, than Mickey Mouse. But, you know, Cinderella, Snow White, um, I'm sure there's plenty of them, The Little Mermaid. These are all based on Grimm's fairy tales or Hans Christian Andersen's uh, Little Mermaid. It's all based on stuff that was in the public domain when they created it. So that's a perfect example of why we want this stuff to enter the public domain, because then new creators can come along and come along with new interpretations. And that's what is happening here with Winnie the Pooh, whether you like it or not. You know, there will be more new interpretations of Winnie the Pooh um, that, you know, new creators will 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 come upon and, and create new art with it. So, so that's the reason and that's the reasoning behind um, it uh, copyrights entering the public domain. So Jonathan, notably this film uh, doesn't depict 
Winnie the Pooh, the way many of us think of the character, specifically wearing, you know, the red sweater, the red shirt, that we've come to know him as depicted in the Disney versions of it. In fact, the original A.A. Milne version of Winnie the Pooh doesn't really look like the Disney version. So Mm -hmm. I think that's why we don't see this particular version of Winnie the Pooh in the horror trailer wearing a red shirt. What if he was? What would Disney do in that case? Well, Disney, we we don't know what what they would do, but they they would have a claim. Now, whether that claim would be successful, um, there'd be quite a bit of, uh, there'd be many defenses to it. But Disney's argument would be, and this is, this argument is, is right, which is, look, we took something, we're entitled to our own in, uh, copyright on our interpretation of Winnie the Pooh. And so let's say, you know, I'm just making this up, that, that, that their depiction of him came out in 1960, whether it was created by them or, or later assigned to them. Let's just make that up. So then uh, the de- Disney's depiction of Winnie the Pooh wouldn't enter the public domain for another 95 years after 1960, assuming that there was corporate authorship. But I think the best example of this and one I've given uh, before is uh, Frankenstein's monster. So I think we all have an image in our head of what Frankenstein looks like. He's green. He's got the two bolts coming out of his neck. He has the flat, Ed. Um, and, you know, Frankenstein, the book, Frankenstein's Monster, was was written by Mary Shelley, I think, in the early 19th century. So it's been in the public domain forever. Um, but the Frankenstein we think about was, it, it, that's not how he was described in the book, as I understand it. That Frankenstein, the Boris Kar- Karlov Frankenstein that we all know, uh, was created either for the movie or maybe for a play right before it, I, I don't know. But that depiction of Frankenstein won't enter the public domain for another, I think, another decade or two. And so that's a perfect example of, you know, one depiction, and it happens to be the depiction that I think our culture has has, has come to identify with Frankenstein being protected by copyright. But the character itself, the book itself, the story itself is in the public domain and has been in the public domain since that interpretation was created. Jonathan, so much of the litigation involved in these kind of cases comes down to maybe two questions um, for the party trying to assert the license or the trademark. Number one, how successful the exploitation is, the new use of the of the mark or the intellectual property, right? The more successful, the more money it makes, the more likely that, that the party alleging an infraction is going to go after it because – these things are, you know, could be billion-dollar right. franchises. Number two, mm-hmm. uh, it's all about, you know, sometimes these lawsuits do involve brand protection. Regardless of how successful the new exploitation is, Disney, for, for example, is famous for protecting their brands. After all, they're marketing to young, impressionable people who might not take mm-hmm. well to a depiction of one of their characters as a killer. So <laughs> how do those two interests, um, you know, influence litigants if – this movie does result in litigation as it, it could it could be so you you've actually hit on a, on a different issue which is which is brand which is trademarks and trademark law is different from copyright law in fact trademarks last forever um, as long as you continue to use them and as long as there continues to be a genuine brand associated with the trademark 
So Disney, um, in preparation for these things uh, entering the public domain, I think Mickey Mouse is going to enter the public domain, at least his earliest depiction, I think next year or, or might already have. But in preparation for that, and also naturally, has created a brand, has created a trademark. So uh, the classic depiction of, of Mickey Mouse or the, or the classic depiction of Winnie the Pooh, assuming that does enter the, the public domain whenever, let's again, let's say in 10 years, just as hypothetically, mm -hmm. If someone took that classic depiction and slapped it on a T-shirt, that's going to get them sued for trademark infringement because consumers will associate that with Disney and will think that shirt is coming from Disney. A movie is a little different. Um, and one of the things that I think I don't know if they've done it in this movie, but if they were using a, something that was that was clearly trademarked, they would probably put a disclaimer on there that this is not associated with Disney. But but you've hit on something which is trademark law is a sort of another arrow in the quiver of intellectual property owners. If they've created a brand around something and they've trademarked it and trademarks kind of like copyrights, they can arise just organically even without registering them. But but that can create a another weapon for um, an intellectual property owner. And now getting back to the the other part of the question, which is obviously money. Um, yeah, you're going to be more likely to sue if you're uh, to get sued, I should say, if your potential infringement is successful. Some companies like Disney, and it's really part of their strategy, and, and they've kind of toned down, toned this down a little bit, I think, in the last 10, 15 years. But, you know, they were famous for going after anyone who depicted Mickey Mouse. And one of the reasons why they did that wasn't just for copyright. It was to protect the trademark, to protect the association of the depiction with Mickey Mouse with um, Disney. Um, but that said, because to that point, uh, if you don't protect it, the courts could rule that you don't have the right to protect it in the future. Right. So uh, part of the aggressive strategy and going after everything is to, you know, enforce it across the board. Right. That's true. in trademark is not true in copyright law. So in right. copyright law, I could sleep on my rights for years. There might be a limitation on how far back I can go for damages. But, but you're allowed to basically sleep on your rights and copyright. But trademark, you're not precisely for the reason that we're not we're, we're protecting a brand. And so if you're not protecting your brand, the courts aren't going to protect the brand um, because consumers aren't associating that with you. Um, but, yeah, there, and that that gets into a question of, of, of abandonment, if you've abandoned your trademarks and, and that gets that gets very complicated. But. But that said, I mean, the more successful, uh, you know, your potential infringement, the more likely you're going to get sued. I think that's that's fair to say as a, as a general proposition against well-resourced uh, people or companies like Disney, probably less so. But but, you know, I think they're today they're much more likely to let things go if it's not uh, particularly in the copyright um, world, if it's not really creating much traction. Um, in, in the market. Jonathan, we've talked a lot today about the uh, the law as it applies domestically. Are the laws different for international distribution of a product like this, uh, a horror film? Sure. Um, there's, there's, they're much less, they're much more uniform than they used to be. There's obviously still variations, but for example, the life plus 70 measurement and the 95 years for a corporate authorship, that actually comes from international uh, treaty obligations we have. It used to be life plus 50, and I think 75 years. We extended it in the late 90s, and one of the excuses, though I think 
Some blame Disney and other copyright holders for basically just getting a free extension of their property rights. But one of the reasons for it was that uh, internationally it was longer. It was Life Plus 70. That said, there's obviously still some outliers out there. I don't know uh, what they are off the top of my head. But, you know, those outliers are going to be in places where it's going to be hard to enforce your intellectual property anyways. So, you know, in, in some random country in the middle of, you know, I don't know, in the middle of Asia or something, you know, it, it's it's going to be it's going to be harder to, to enforce your copyrights there anyway. So it, it's not as important, I think. Jonathan, we've seen similar um, piece of intellectual property. I'm thinking of Sherlock Holmes entering the public mm-hmm. domain flooding the market with interpretations of it. Um, there's been a couple interpretations of Winnie the Pooh, but this certainly is a um, dramatic one, in, 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 for lack sure. of a better term. I mean, it's not a very expensive movie. I think they filmed it over the course of 10 days. Um, but do you think others are sort of watching to see the reaction in the market to something like this before trying to exploit this very beloved character, Winnie the Pooh? Yes, I, I do. And I think whoever's behind this has done a good job of exploiting kind of the legal issue here. And I, I don't mean that getting people like us to talk about legal issues. I just mean that the, the, this sort of loophole that they it's, and it's not a loophole. I mean, it, it's 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 uh, it's the law itself. And, you know, exploiting that and being first to market, then that's creating buzz. So I think there will be copycats, for example, when when Mickey Mouse first enters the public domain, like I said, I think it's next year and it's only the original Steamboat Willie uh, depiction, which is a little different from what we know. But I wouldn't be surprised to see people watching this and going, let's do our own uh, cheap horror film with Mickey Mouse or something just to get it out there because you're going to get some buzz because of this, because you're 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 doing something that you couldn't have been able to do before. Um, and I think first to market's going to matter. Um, and, you know, I mean, how many Winnie the Pooh horror films are going to get made? Probably not a lot. I mean, maybe this will be a series. It depends how, how good it is, really. And, and that, you know, that goes to the, what, what the point of copyright law is, you know, sort of a free market. You know, if this is a, if this is a film that has merit on its own, aside from it, you know, utilizing a well-known character, it'll be successful and it will lead to, you know, more, uh, films and we'll see Tigger, uh, you know, a bad Tigger in the in in a few years in, the, in one of these sequels. But if it's no good, it's gonna you know it's not gonna go anywhere. We can only hope. Uh, last question here on the sermon pod, Jonathan. Are you a horror fan? Uh, are you as excited by horror films coming out as me, or or do you stay away from that genre? And if so, no, what's your I, favorite? Yeah, no, my favorite growing up was was the Nightmare on Elm Street uh, series, uh, and then Friday the Thirteenth. You know, Jason and and Freddy. I had a lot of nightmares from them, um, and I still like horror. I, it, I'm not so much into the slasher stuff as as I was when I was a kid. And, um, you know, I'm more into uh, you know Get Out, of course, by uh, I forget, uh, Keith. Keenan and Kel, one of those, <laughs> I forget who it is, but um, obviously uh, that, um, The Sixth Sense, you know, the, I'm more into the psychological horror, some of the early M. Night uh, Shyamalan stuff, um, the slasher stuff I'm not as big into anymore, but I certainly was when I was a kid. I mean, I loved Nightmare on Elm Street. I loved uh, Friday the 13th and, and of course, Halloween. Well, it's a good shout out to another one of our podcasts because we dealt with the Friday the 13th intellectual property battle that's gone on for for many years uh-huh. recently. That, uh, that's a great yeah. sermon pod that we'll be releasing shortly. 
Jonathan Stein Sapir from Kinsella Weitzman. Thank you so much for joining us on the Sermapod. Very interesting discussion. Please come back soon. Sure. Thank you for having me. Ideas, strategies, and opinions represented on this podcast are those of the speakers and do not represent the ideas, strategies, and opinions of their employers.